0: Turning your Bibles, please, to Acts twenty one. I'm going to read from Acts twenty one thirty seven to the end of twenty two twenty two, though. if I preach that passage, your grandchildren would hear it. I would, um, We would be here for 12 hours. I'm going to shorten it. I promise it won't be 12 hours. Um, where are we? 21. Okay. Acts 21, verse 37. Hear the word of our holy and perfect God. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know... Greek, then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there, with a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying... Brothers and fathers, hear my defense for which I now offer to you, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, And also the high priests and the council of elders can testify. From them I received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, "'Who are you, Lord?' And he said to me, "'I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting.' And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, "'What shall I do, Lord?' And the Lord said to me, "'Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that it has been appointed for you to do.' But since I could not see, because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus." A certain man, Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, to hear an utterance from his mouth. You will be witnesses, you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard now why do you delay get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance I saw him saying to me make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me and I said Lord they themselves understand that I am that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you even this morning, the day that you have appointed for your corporate worship, a day that you have called us not to forsake, that we would gather together as one household, one family, even the kingdom of God upon the earth. Forgive our disinclination to be here. Thank you, Lord God, that you gave us life and strength and even a desire to come together with brothers and sisters. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide me, thou my great Jehovah. The words of my sermon would be the words of your scripture. And Lord, that our thoughts and our hearts would be fixed upon um, you, O God. Take away our cowardice, work in us a holy courage uh, to live for you, Jesus Christ, in an anti-Christ world. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what I've done is um, the title of the sermon is changed. The title of the sermon is Defending the Faith, Lessons Learned, um, Part 1, actually. So my intention is to, um, is to take the next two, three, maybe even four um, sermons, if the Lord gives me four times, um, and walk through this particular passage that we just read. There are, I would say maybe even six or seven preaching portions, legitimate preaching portions. But One of them, I'll give you an example. Paul says, this is what I was like before I was converted. That's a legitimate sermon right there. Mm-hmm. Then you have the next verse. He says, here are some particulars concerning my conversion. That's another legitimate standalone sermon. So there are a number of subsections within what I read. What I want to do is mainly unpack what we find in 21, 20, uh, 37 to 40, Paul's discussing what he's discussing with the Roman uh, commander. We'll bring in some other things. But we're just looking at the concept of defending the faith. Look at chapter 22, verse uh, 1. 22, verse 1. It talks. It uses that word, defending the faith. The word in Greek is apologia. Um, it's, it's like a, a courtroom defense of the faith. The book of Jude, I'm reading for my morning worship, also has this idea of as Christian peoples, particularly ministers, that we are are required by God to defend the faith. God the Holy Spirit says through Jude to the church, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, that's the salvation we have in Christ the Gospel, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, and here's this apologia idea, this defense of the faith, appealing to you, begging you, that you contend earnestly for the faith. That's the gospel. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down for all of the saints. So today we're just going to look at the whole idea of defending the faith. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to defend the faith, both before Jews and before Gentiles, before the world and before the church, defending the faith. I have in this morning's sermon, if you're on the church email list, you're going to get it on Tuesday. If you're not on the church email list, give me your email and you'll get my notes. I for sure will never not be able to preach what I have, but in my notes, I have seven lessons we learn about defending the faith. And that's going to be our track that we follow uh, today. So let's bring in a little bit of the context of what we saw last week. We see it coming to a head again in verse 22. The Jews are going to want to kill Paul. Previously, they did try to kill him. This is going to be the second time that they want to try to kill him in a short period of time. So this morning is a continuation of the theme and the situation that the Apostle Paul was undergoing as a servant of Jesus. The Apostle Paul has been busy in his ministry sharing Jesus Christ to his fellow Jews. Yes, he's an apostle to the Gentiles, but as a Jew, he loves the Jews deeply. This is Romans 9 and 10. He says he loves the Jews deeply And he wants them to be converted to Christ as he was converted to Christ. Talks about this in Philippians 3, 1 through 14. And so he's been busy sharing Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, that they should believe in him and the Jews are wanting to kill him for that. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own and his own knew him what? Not. So this this, this is a Romans 1 and a Romans 2. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ, that Jesus saves sinners by his blood, goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It begins in Judea, Jerusalem, and then Acts chapter 1. It says it goes to Samaria, to these kind of Jew-Gentile hybrids, and then it goes to the rest of the world. That would be us. Most of us are physically Gentiles, and we've been brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the scheme, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And that's what God is doing. He's making good on that promise. Remember Jesus says, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he came to them and they said, no, thank you, sir. We don't want you to rule over us. We want a different kind of a Christ. We want a different kind of a Savior. We want a Savior that will kill the Romans and not pay for our sins. And so God, the Holy Spirit, sends another servant and another servant and another servant to the the Jews time and time again. God likens it in the Old Testament. All day long I held out my hand to you. How this works with the sovereignty of God, I don't know. But I know the Bible does say it. All day long, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ, be forgiven. And all day long, the Jews, and then the Gentiles as well, the Jews in context will be saying, no, thank you. You're not the kind of Christ that we want. And that occurs in the life of the Apostle Paul. And then he ha- they have been opposing him. So if we're looking at this, this section just thematically, of what lessons does defending the faith of Christ what lessons does God the Holy Spirit through His Word teach us? The very first lesson is very basic that in defending Jesus Christ to Jew or Gentile, to the worldling, the person that's not converted, you will, underline will, and I would say must, incur opposition. It is not possible in an Antichrist world to share that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, exclusive. It's not possible to be faithful to jesus christ and proclaim his exclusive nature and work again in this present evil age it is not possible without incurring opposition do i understand that not everyone is an apostle yes these are extraordinary officers do i understand that everyone's not a church officer or preacher or evangelist yes yes but every single christian every christian has the gospel You have been given the gospel talent. And we have been given the gospel talent in order to give the gospel talent away. Whether it's to your children or your children's children or your next door neighbor. So that's male or female, young or old. All of us will be called by God the Holy Spirit sometime in our life to defend apologia, the faith of Christ Jesus. And the first thing that we need to understand is that as Jesus told us, if we love him, and stand for him in this world, what will the world do for us? will hate us. The Bible says, if you, believer, which is what Paul is experiencing, so we're just kind of getting that first lesson, if we desire to live godly in this world, what can you expect? You're going to be persecuted. If we desire to live for Christ, to live holily for Christ, and to speak up for Christ, we will be persecuted. It's not possible to get around it. The Apostle Paul comes and he goes back to the churches that he was busy planting in Acts chapter 14. And he says, I have to encourage you, brothers and sisters. It's through many trials and tribulations that we inherit the kingdom of God. So when you hear someone say, oh, Christianity is about coming to Jesus and all, oh, everything is perfect after that. Everybody loves you. Life is going to go swimmingly and no problems after that. They're not telling you the truth. They're not telling you the truth. So Jesus never lies. He says, count the cost. If you come to me, it's going to go hard for you with the world. Now, with, with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's a different matter. But it, when we come to defending the faith, we will be opposed uh, for um, Christ's sake. And what does this lesson require of us as Christians, knowing that we will be opposed for Christ's sake. Jesus says, Don't suppose I came to bring peace in this world, but what? What does he say? You remember? A sword. There's another place that Jesus says, If we're his people, which we are, he tells us to pick up our something, which is our cross. To deny ourselves and to follow him in this antichrist world. And what's going to happen when we do that, when we take a stand for Jesus, and we live for him and speak for him, that's part of our cross-carrying. If someone says, well, I I just want the good part, I don't want the cross-carrying. That's part of the good part, by the way. But living for the Lord Jesus Christ requires us, as Christians, to actually pick up the cross. So even, even this most basic of lessons, we're being told that we cannot, as Christians, live on the narrow path of Christ amid people that are living on the broad path of Antichrist without incurring opposition. It, it is not possible. The Puritans would say, why do we think that our Jesus went to heaven in the Via Della Rosa, the hard and sorrowful road, that we as Christians think that we should go to, to heaven on a, on a bed of roses? It is not possible, of it." If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're gonna share in his sufferings, as Paul shared in his sufferings, as Peter, as James, as Jude, as John, as read Hebrews chapter 11. So to love and own Christ before a world that doesn't love and own Christ, it will be a difficult proposition because it's the narrow road. And then we have to ask ourselves, when we hear that, it's a very strange person that likes pain and suffering. It's a very strange person we have to ask ourselves, do we fear man, beloved, do you fear man more than you fear God? What do you think? Do you care more what man thinks of you, or do you care more of living to the honor of Jesus? You see what I'm getting at. This is an either-or proposition. Now you say, well, pastor, the world could kill you if you keep opening your mouth for Jesus. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They killed Paul. They killed Peter. They tried to kill John, for sure. Hebrews 11, they're going to, for sure. But Jesus says, don't fear those who can do what? You remember? Who can only kill the body. Only kill the body, says Jesus. And after they kill the body, they can't do anything to your soul. Love it in the book of Revelation, the martyrs who have lived and died for the glory of Jesus Christ, they've had their heads chopped off, they've been beheaded for the love of Christ. It says they did not count their lives as too dear to them. So the whole purpose of our life is not to live long. The purpose of our life is to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that first lesson is if we are going to defend the faith of Christ in this world, we, we will be opposed. The second thing that we see is, is defending the faith requires, and I know this is going to seem so simplistic, it, it, it requires proclamation. And you would think, well, Pastor, no kidding. Yes, no kidding. Paul here defends his faith obviously verbally, and then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's written down. The way that we defend the Christian faith is not expressly how, how we live. Sometimes people say you can live out the gospel. That's not true. You can't live out the gospel. That's not true. The gospel is propositions about the person and the work of Jesus. You can't live out the gospel. You can live to the glory of the gospel, to the honor of the gospel, but you can't live the gospel. The gospel is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's facts about Jesus. And so you can live in such a way as brings it that, those facts Glory or dishonor. So when we talk about pro- defending the faith, it has to be in words about Christ in his person and his work. It's either verbally, as Paul is doing, or it's in writing. That's how you do it. it, ha- it the, the, the second lesson is, in defending the faith, it requires a proclamation. Now, when I say defending the faith, sometimes... Even well-meaning Christians, we get this wrong, um, we think like this, well, what defending the faith means is defending, have you ever heard this phrase I'm about to use, Judeo-Christian values? You ever heard that? You hear, every four years, you, you generally hear it in the ramp up. Um, most people, even Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, he literally sounds like a born-again Christian, and he's a flaming Hindu, um, he said the other day, I believe in one true and living God. I'm like, what are you, kidding me? Like, and all the Christians are lapping this up like lemmings. But when we come here, everybody and their brother says, I'm defending Judeo-Christian values. Is that what Paul is doing when he's defending the faith? Defending the faith about? Not moral strictures. Not moral strictures. This is what... Who is it? Uh, Who's the guy? The uh, Jewish guy. Uh, Ben uh, Hudson Frutz. I forget his last name. Yeah, right. He talks about um, um, uh, defending Judeo-Christian values. I'm for that. That's not this. That's not this. I would argue if we walked around as Christians saying, here's what our message is, and here's what we're defending, you should be nice. Because Jesus was nice. Jesus was meek and lowly. So you should be meek and lowly. If you say that message to my Hindu family, they're going to love you. They'll totally love you. If you say to your unbelieving friend, here's what Christianity is all about. It's moral values. You shouldn't steal. You should be kind to your uh, feathered friend. And maybe you should stay married just for the heck of it. Maybe. That's not this. And I'm not against those other things. I'm not saying that we don't defend the law of God, the moral law of God. Of course we do. But it's not the moral law of God that Paul's defending. And it's not the moral law of God that's going to get us in a pickle with the unbeliever. What gets us in a pickle with the unbeliever? It's the proclamation of what or whom? Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ. 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 Yeah, do I believe with Bobby Hudson Frutz when he says his, his values? Of course I do. But mention the name of Jesus. And that's what happens. You see the difference. And the Jesus of the Bible, not a fake Jesus. Because there's lots of fake Jesuses. This is Matthew chapter 24, many false Christs. So the first lesson is to proclaim, to defend the faith, it's, we're going to be opposed. And the second thing is to procl- defend the faith means we defend the faith of Jesus. So the gospel, remember I said we can't live out the gospel. The gospel is not what we do It's what Christ does. It's what Christ does. We believe the gospel, but it's not about what we do. I'm not arguing we shouldn't do. We shouldn't live a a holy life subsequent receiving the gospel. Of course we should. But proclaiming the faith means that we actually defend the faith of Christ and what I would argue is Christ crucified. It's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. It's the atonement. We are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. Read Hebrews 10 through 12. The reason Jesus has a body is, the reason we have Calvary is uh, Bethlehem is for Calvary. It's the cross. It is the cross that distinguishes Christianity as the only true religion in the world. It's the cross. Paul says, I come preaching the cross, the atoning blood of Jesus. It's not our good works. We can't do enough good works earn our way to heaven. In fact, every time we try to do a good work to earn our way in heaven, we're incurring more, more guilt. And so what Paul is defending is he's not. Paul wasn't persecuted by the Jews because he had a different view in circumcision. Paul was persecuted by the Jews. Why? Because he said Jesus is the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what we defend. It has to be the proclamation and the defense of that truth. That's the third lesson. The second lesson, excuse me. It's we're proclaiming and defending Jesus Christ in his atoning blood. That's it. That's the essence of the gospel. The third thing is, not only is Paul defending the faith, and here's where the rubber is going to meet the road, he's defending his faith. There's a difference. There are people who could write correct treatises on what Orthodox Christianity is. They could write me what the gospel is. They could write it out. They could give me Bible quotes and get it right. But they themselves don't believe it. So there is a difference between saying, This is what the gospel is, which we should do. What Paul is doing is saying, This is who Jesus is. This is what the gospel is. And he's mine. I own him. He's mine all of my previous good works, this is what he does in Philippians 3, to all of these Jews. These Jews knew him. Yes, I fasted twice a week. Yes, I flagellated myself. Yes, I did all this nonsense. It's all garbage next to the righteousness of Jesus. Garbage. Now that I found Christ. He owns him. This is where the the scarier part of defending the faith. This is not theory. This is not... When we talk about whether we're a minister or not a minister, it requires for us to stand up and be counted. And sometimes we think, man, if I was there, boy, I would stand up and I would be, I'd be the point guy. Really? Let's see how that works at like Thanksgiving, when the old lady stares you down and you'll shut your mouth and won't say anything about Jesus. We all think we're Sergeant York, we're gonna charge the hill. Most of us won't open our mouths to the bag lady at the the, the grocery store to talk about Jesus, because we're afraid. (laughs) It requires that we own it. That he's my Christ, that he's forgiven me of my sins. And how and when the Holy Spirit is going to put you in a place where he's going to require you, that's his business. But I'm going to tell you something. As a Christian... If you're a minister, if you want to be a minister, you're going to do this on a regular basis. You are going to open your mouth in the face of Christ's enemies and tell Christ's enemies that you love Christ and Christ loves you regularly as a minister. And if you don't, you need to get gone. But for all Christians, it doesn't matter if you're a young girl, an old man, God the Holy Spirit will, at a time or multiple times in your life, put you in a situation where he wants you to open your mouth up. You tell them that you own Jesus. You own him. And that he's yours. Does that make sense? It's kind of a scary thing, is it not? To stand up in front of people that you know don't love Jesus. Not in an obnoxious way. But the Holy Spirit says, now, open your mouth. Who is Christ to you? Will we say and, beloved, if you were converted later in life, as I was converted later in life, here's what's going to happen. That people would say, ah, you were the guy lying in the bushes. Ah, you were the guy doing this. Ah, you were the girl doing this. You were the girl catting around. You were this. You were that. And what should we say? Were. Were. I've been washed. I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Don't shrink back from what you are. Jesus is in the saving sinners business. I feel bad for the people that don't think they're sinners. They don't need Jesus, but of course they do need Jesus. And the question then comes as regarding to this third lesson of defending the faith requires personal ownership. Will you you stand for the Lord? Will you stand for the Lord even in the face of the Lord's enemies. And it's, it's, it's easier for me in some ways and harder for me in other ways, but it's easier because I work among Christians most of the time. What happens if you're a military guy? There's some military guys here this morning. And you go to get your right, mind right class where boys are trying to change themselves into girls or girls are marrying girls. You're going to get sent to this class, trust me. You're going to go to this class, right? Right. And they say, you got to believe this. Or you don't get to become captain major or whatever. What do you do? What do you do? Well, it's your career if you don't. I, I understand that. It is your career if you don't. What do you do? Is that the occasion where the Holy Spirit says, open your mouth and say you're a Christian, but I'll lose my job. Yeah, read, read Hebrews 11. What do you do? I'm not, and I'm not saying, hey, it's easy for you to say I get it, but you, you see what I'm saying. All of this requires, as we consider ourselves as Christians defending the faith, it requires this. Do I, and I mean for all of us, to say to ourselves, do I really believe in Jesus? Do you really believe in Jesus? For you, not mom or dad. For you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you know what you believe? If I asked you what you believe, can you tell me? Could you tell me from the Bible? Or do you have to call your wife to have her tell you what we believe? And I'm only being quasi-funny. A lot of us have the faith of somebody else. But that doesn't cut it. When we come to professing the faith, it has to be us. That's the third lesson. The fourth lesson is this. Defending the faith of Christ crucified will reveal true spiritual nature. And it will distinguish between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. That's the language of Paul, God through Paul in Romans 8 and God through Paul in Galatians 5. Defending the faith of Christ crucified will reveal who we really are. The word hypocrite. Christians get called hypocrites all the time. Mostly I think it's nonsense. It's just unbelievers that hate Jesus and hate people that love Jesus and they don't want to hear it, so they call us hypocrites. And they said, Oh, I saw you say a bad word one time, or y- you jaywalked another time, therefore I don't want the gospel. Whatever. They called the, the Lord of glory a, a friend of prostitutes and a drunk. So I, I own all that nonsense. So mostly when people call us hypocrites, they're mostly just unbelievers that don't want to hear the gospel. But hypocrite in the ancient Greek means a play actor. You put a mask on, and it's, Ha ha, I say I'm a Christian, <laughs> but then when I get back to the house, I take my mask off. I'm not really. When we defend the faith of Christ, only Christ pays for our sins. In that proclamation, that defense, that will reveal in the people that we give that message to who and what they really are. You can't fake it. You'll see the twitch in their eye and they they, they cannot handle it. Even the people that are not verbose like me, and I say nothing about nothing. Okay, but I'm watching the eyeball twitch when I'm telling you about Jesus and you're wanting to kill me. <laughs> so I know what you are. When Paul is proclaiming the gospel, which is what he's going to do, who is, he, who, is, who, who is the audience in front of him? They're Jews. They're his brothers. They're his sisters. They shared language in common. They shared culture in common. They should have shared religion in common, but they didn't. And what he comes along says, Jesus is the promised Christ. Jesus is the prom- promised Christ. And what did these Jews, who were his brothers and sisters, say to their brother and sister? We are going to kill you. That, in the defense of the gospel, in the presentation of Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, that will reveal in the life of the recipient whether they are in the flesh and sowing to the flesh or whether they are in the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit. The Gospel is the message of Christ, and it produces two results or responses in the life of two kinds of people, those who are devoid of the Spirit and those who possess the Spirit. To one class of people, which is what Paul is talking to, it's the stench of something. What is it? When you talk about Jesus... Jesus pays for sins. Jesus rises for our justification. It's only Jesus. And the person, the Holy Spirit, has not given them faith. That message is so offensive to them because it condemns them. It's the stench of death. That's why they don't want you coming to Thanksgiving. That's why you have to get gone. They don't want you around. Because it's literally like looking at condemnation every time they hear you and look at you. But to the person that has been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, and you say that, what do, what do, what do, what's the response? Praise God. And here's, here's the thing. Christians, real Christians, born-again Christians, we have two natures, the born-again part, the regenerate part, and the unborn-again, the flesh. So we have this war going on inside of us. And so we'll know this is true. Here are these people with all of these external similarities. Same everything except one knows Christ and loves Christ and the other people don't. And what do they do for all of those other similarities? They don't mean anything. They mean nothing. But then for the person who does have the Holy Spirit and does know and love Jesus Christ, we could be as dissimilar. Look around in this room. Where's it? former Catholic from Boston married to a former Hindu from India? And now what are we? We're brothers and sisters, we're husband and wife and then take us all from all around the planet and stick us in the same room, and what are we? We're family. So the external distinctives don't make any, mean anything, but it's the touchstone of the gospel that will reveal who and what we really are. And I would say this as well. Not only does it reveal our spiritual nature when they hear the gospel of Christ being defended, but also their response to the gospel-er, What evil thing did Paul do to these Jews? Did he punch them in the mouth or like say bad things about them? No. This is the crazy thing for you as a Christian and you know, you experience this. You tell your unbelieving family and friends, Christ is Lord and Savior. He forgives sinners. He'll make us into one glorious family and then we get to go to heaven. You, awful person. You don't want gay whatever. You, bad person. And what have you just done? Shared everlasting life with them. They're not hating you because you're doing bad things. They hate you because of who they are spiritually. They hate you because of who they are. So not only does the proclamation of the gospel reveal who we are, but how we respond to people that love Jesus. That reveals who and what we are. That's the fourth lesson. And the fifth lesson we see just generally in the proclamation or the defense of the gospel is that defending the faith of Christ is under the government of our God. And there is only one God. The God of the Bible alone is the true and the living God. I know we're not supposed to say that now. Whatever. The God of the Bible is the only God. And all of the gods of the nations, the Bible says, are not God. That's what God says. And when we come here in Paul's defense of the gospel, the Jews literally are trying to rip him to shreds. They just tried to kill him. (laughs) Now, by verse 22, they're going to try to kill him again. And God, the Holy Spirit, sends a very unlikely physical Savior to save Christ's servant in the person of this guy's name is Claudius Lysias, the Roman. Uh, Acts 22, excuse me, 23, verse 26. This Roman commander saves Paul twice from being ripped to shreds. And then on a third time, you remember Paul's nephew comes, he overhears the Jews put themselves under an oath that they're not going to eat until they do what to Paul? Kill him. And so the nephew comes and he tells Claudius Lysias, hey, these guys are going to kill my uncle, your prisoner. And Claudius Lysias says, not under my watch. And he sends him under a massive, heavy heavy Roman guard off to Caesarea. That's this guy. And so what do we learn about, well, Pastor, you're telling us if we share Jesus and defend Jesus in this anti-Jesus world, people are not going to like us. That's true. And maybe even want to try to kill us. That's true as well. But here's the good news. It's all good news. They can't kill you. Until God wants you gone. God sends a Roman centurion. This guy's not converted. This guy's not a believer. That means he's on the same team as the Jews. So he's, he, he, he's antichrist. He's an enemy. God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say, God's such a gentleman. He can't do this. He can't do that. And man really is sovereign and God's not sovereign. That's nonsense too. God is God and man is not God no matter what. The Bible says in Roman, Proverbs chapter 21, God the Holy Spirit takes the hearts of a king and moves him like a What? Like a river, he does what he wants. Read Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four. He does what he wants. God, the Holy Spirit takes a lion, a Claudius Lysias, and he preserves Christ's lamb. I want you to think of that. We are walking around thinking, "How's it all going to work?" And we got to vote in two twenty-four, and this guy's got to get on the blah, 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 blah. and then for the good of the church. <laughs> no way. There will always be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, always. Not by any politician, but by this God. God will take Christ-haters and preserve the church of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen. And we need to believe that. One of my favorite evangelists, I think the greatest evangelist of all time, apart from the Apostle Paul, is George Whitfield. This is what Paul experiences in the defense of Christ. George Whitfield said this, We, as gospelers, Christ people living for the proclamation of Christ, we are are immortal until our work is done. They can't kill me until my work is done. And then, when my work is done, my Christ takes me home. That's this. We're not courting death, we're not denying the the, the reality of secondary causes. Read Confession chapter 3 and chapter 5. But we're trusting in the sovereign government of God as we live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Like, what about, what about, what about, what about? Forget the what about. You know the duty. Live for Christ and proclaim Christ. You know the duty. Pick up your cross. Christ alone, you know the duty. If you start to be overly concerned with man, you'll spook yourself out of the duty. We have to proclaim Christ knowing that it's under the government of God. That's the fifth lesson. The other thing I think that would be helpful for the church to see in the defense of the gospel, this is the sixth lesson. Look at how the Apostle Paul speaks to the Roman commander. Look at how he does it. May I say something to you? Do you give me permission to speak to you? What do we call that? We call that giving honor to him honor is due. When we proclaim Christ crucified, It doesn't mean we get a license to be a donkey. There are so many times as Christians we think, oh, I'm being persecuted because I'm sharing Jesus or I'm living for Jesus. And no, we're just being persecuted because we're being knuckleheads. Right? We're being ugly, persnickety knuckleheads and the people don't like us. There's a difference between that and sharing the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ to an antichrist world in a respectful, loving, gentle manner. That's the sixth lesson. So being faithful to Jesus doesn't mean that we have to be obnoxious. Paul is sharing to the Jews who want to kill him, Christ in a respectful, humble way. Christ has just been, Paul has been just put in chains and he's respectful to this person. This is obedience to the fifth commandment. So when we Think of the gospel. The gospel takes lions, tigers, and bears, and makes us doves and lambs. It makes unholy sinners holy. It's the message of holy Christ. Can we share holy Christ with bitter, mean, nasty, grr, persnickety? No. This is a this is a James chapter three. If you're a pure uh, 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 water source, you, we ought not to be bitter. And sometimes. As Christians, we think that we're defending the faith and we're being opposed for defending the faith, but it's really not the faith. They just don't like that we vote for one guy. Or, and I'm not talking about who you should vote for. But fighting over those things is not defending the gospel. And being hated for those things is not being hated for Christ's sake. So Christ wants us to share the gospel in a respectful manner. And I, I will say this. Claudius Lysias is an unbeliever. Do you as a believer have to speak respectfully and humbly to unbelievers that God places over you? Oh, yeah, you do. Oh, yeah, you do. What happens if your mama, or your dad is an unbeliever? You better honor them. You better speak with deference to them. Why? Because God says it. Well, they're unbelievers. That's God's business. Your job is to, 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 to obey And and when we speak deferentially and respectfully and humbly, that's a platform for the gospel. We show that we actually believe. The Bible says the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. So fighting over the gospel is not going to convert people to the gospel. Calling people donkeys because they don't believe the gospel doesn't convert them to the gospel. The Bible says sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. That's what the Bible says. And Paul does all of these things. And the last thing I want to say as far as the sixth lesson is this. It's kind of a species of, um, or the seventh lesson, it's kind of a species of the fourth lesson. The fourth lesson says when we defend the gospel, it will reveal who people are spiritually, either for Christ or against Christ. The seventh thing that we see in this, in what the the centurion says back to Paul, is not only will the gospel defended reveal who we are, it will actually divide us into camps. You will actually either commune with one group, people that reject the true Christ, or you will commune with people, those who, who, who love uh, the truth, true Christ. So it will, the gospel defended will reveal, but the gospel defended will separate, physically separate. And why do I say that? So Paul speaks to the Roman, and he speaks to him in Greek. And then the, the Roman says, you know Greek? Greek. So the Roman commander thinks that Paul is an Egyptian assassin. Josephus writes about this guy in Antiquities in his book, The Wars. Josephus actually says this guy actually got up as high as 30,000 guys. So he, the Roman, thinks that that Paul is this uh, assassin, assassin, this terrorist. Now, terrorist is a term that people use when they don't like the guy. When they do like the guy, he's a freedom fighter. But... That guy, that Roman in his history, excuse me, that Egyptian, gathered to himself masses of Jews. He was an Egyptian that said, I'm your Savior. I prophesy that through me, we're going to destroy the Romans. Now listen to this. Paul's a fellow Jew saying, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and they hate him. Here comes a, a Gentile Egyptian says, I'm the new prophet, who Josephus calls a false prophet. Come to me, I'll rescue from the Romans, we'll kill them all. And what do the Jews say to the Egyptian? We're totally on board with this. (laughs) Do you see that? Different people, but they love the same false gospel. They love the false Christ, and so they're birds of a feather and they flock together. Who we flock together with, physically, weekly, daily, it reveals who and what we are. And the gospel does that. This is why, and what these Jews are showing is, the kind of Christ they want is not Savior Christ. They want political Christ. They want culture Christ. They don't want Bible Christ. Sin atoning, sin assuaging, heaven reconciling Christ. They just want a this worldly, I'm going to have my best life now Christ. And those people glom on with those people. And the people that love the Christ of the Bible, we gather together. It will separate. So this is, this is not rocket science. You can look in your life and say, who are the people that I'm drawn to? Christian people, if you're a Christian. Who am I drawn to? Is it some silly, fake, non-Bible gospel people? Do I want to be with them? Or do I, do I want it to be with Christ crucified? Do I want it to be with a little flock? The people that proclaim, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It doesn't matter what other people say. It's this. These are my people. So the, the Bible does say that the proclamation of the gospel, it will divide. Beloved, I'll just say this: God is going to put you and use you in a scenario where He wants you to share the gospel. He wants you to defend it. And I, I think we should all pray, and I'm going to pray, that He give us greater, greater courage. What I've, everything I've said this morning is scary business. Most of us are afraid of our own shadows. I know everybody's a tough guy until it comes time to to live in for Jesus. I I know that. Everybody's a tough guy. But we're not. We're not. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit make us more courageous to share this Jesus to a world, and and I'm going to say, to a church. To a church. Look at all the apostate churches in our country, they need us to stand up and say, it's not these other things, it's Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.